My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we discussed fast fashion with Aditi Maya, photojournalist, labor rights activist, and campaigner, as well as Michael Doughty, co-founder of sustainable fashion disruptor Hilo Athletics. We also heard from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline, about how our desire to express ourselves through fashion isn't inherently bad, but has been hijacked by an industry intent on selling as much clothing as quickly as possible. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out after this episode. Every day when I say down to eat, I face a new moral conundrum. Should I start shopping local? My cupboard features chocolate from Ecuador and canned tomatoes from China, now looking like a museum piece coated in dust. Maybe I could go vegan, but what will breakfast look like without eggs and cheese? Perhaps I can reduce my food waste. At the bottom of my fridge are brown bananas I refuse to throw out, hoping they'll just vanish so I can avoid the guilt of binning them. I guess I could survive on quinoa, but didn't I just read some article on how it's destroying farms in Bolivia? When was the last time you went food shopping? Maybe you're like me and feel like a zombie sleepwalking through the aisles. As I threw food in the basket, I don't know who grew it or how it was grown. I don't know the resources that went into making it or the chemicals that we used. I really don't know anything other than how much it cost me at the checkout. Do I need to give up my favorite chocolate biscuits because they have palm oil in them? Or ditch the goat's cheese when just thinking about it makes me salivate? Perhaps what I want to know is this. Can I change my relationship with food so that it's a source of joy and sustenance rather than eco-anxiety? I invited some folks onto the podcast to find out. At the end of the episode, I'll be speaking to Christine Doherty, the VP of Agriculture at PepsiCo, the corporate food and beverage giant that makes Pepsi, as well as Quake Oats, Gatorade, Lay's, Doritos, Cheetos, you name it. They even own those Starbucks bottle drinks you see at the supermarket. But first, I want to learn more from someone who is doing their part to fix the food system. So I reached out to Jamie Crummy, 
founder of Too Good To Go, a social impact company fighting food waste. Jamie, take it away. I'm Jamie Crummy, one of the co-founders of Too Good To Go, a social impact company that fights food waste. I co-founded Too Good To Go back at the sort of tail end of 2015. Uh, we now operate in 15 countries globally, so that's across uh, Europe and the US. Uh, we work with over 75,000 different food businesses and have over 35 million different users who have rescued a whopping 60 plus million meals from going to waste. Why food waste? Why was that the problem that you threw yourself at? Back when I was living in Australia, I was working in the events industry and you know ended up having to throw away obscene amounts of food on a daily basis. Several months, years later, I was working with a human rights organization which had an event and it was catered for by a group of individuals who rescued food, much like the food I previously had to throw away. And you know, it was speaking with these people where I became so much more aware of the scale and gravity of the issue with food waste. You know, it then became something which started with an itch, turned into a scratch, and um, yeah, we ended up wanting to do something to uh, to really fight food waste on a global scale. How big is this problem? It is a huge problem. You know, when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions in the context of the climate emergency we're in, and you know, we, we mustn't forget that, you know, we are in a climate emergency and we have a finite amount of time in which to reverse the effects of climate change. And our food system, accounts for over 30% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, putting that into context, the transport industry alone counts for about 15%. So our food system is a huge, huge issue from a climate perspective. And there are many flaws with our food system. And food waste is just one of these. So a third of all food produced ends up getting wasted. This has profound implications from not just a financial perspective, but a social and environmental one as well. And, you know, I mentioned how our food system accounts for 30% of greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, food waste is around about 10% of that. And the reason why food waste is such a huge environmental issue, as I say, is because of the greenhouse gas emissions caused through food waste, meaning that if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter after the US and China. And because of this, you know, when we're wasting food, we're wasting the resources which go into creating it. So that's a waste of the air miles, a waste of the labor, it's a waste of the use of fertilizers, it's a waste of the water. The list goes on. This is why it becomes such a huge environmental issue and just one of the many reasons why our food system is fundamentally flawed. There was a report done last year, March 2020, so a year now, by Project Drawdown. It's the most sort of comprehensive report of its kind and about reversing the effects of climate change. And what this points out to is that fighting food waste is the number one most impactful, most simple solution that we as individuals or businesses or, or leaders or governments, etc., can do to reverse the effects of climate change. So that in itself is incredibly telling, relating to the timely importance to really get behind these issues surrounding our food systems. So if we don't have a more regenerative or a more resilient food system, you know, there will be greater biodiversity loss. There will be even further deforestization. You know, we have around about 
about 60 harvests left because of how fertilizers are poisoning our soil. You know, with all of this, you know, it, it then results in things like natural disasters and the actual physical effects of climate change, which will then lead to further climate refugees and civil wars, things like this. So it's so, so important for us to start addressing our food system right now, because if we don't, the future is very, very bleak. And how much of food waste happens in the home versus at the supermarket versus when it's actually getting produced? The split of food waste essentially varies on the way in which you measure it. So if we were to look across Europe, it's around about 50% of the food waste happens within the home versus around about 15 or so percent from producers. Again, a similar sort of percentage in the hospitality and food service sector with the remainder coming from retail. What it is worth noting is that this isn't actually including the pre-farm gate wastage. So when I'm referring to pre-farm gate, it's talking around the wastage which is happening on the farm itself, nor is it including the amount of wastage which is happening across the world as a result of the consumer demand for importing food into developed nations like the UK. But essentially around 50% of the wastage happens within the homes, though that isn't a true indicator because of the aforementioned lack of reporting happening at farm level. Do you feel that there has been a really considered effort to keep the relationship of food and climate kind of in the dark? I think food in general is often the forgotten thing. And when we look at the importance that food plays, not just in our economy, but also in our day-to-day lives, like let's remind ourselves that food is intrinsic to our own development. It's necessary for our own survival. Coupled with that, it's also, you know, that social glue which brings us together. So food touches us in all different parts of our lives and much more needs to be done to start talking around our food systems and particularly food waste. Last year was the announcement of the UK's national food strategy. Now, this was the first national food strategy in 80 years. <laughs> so why is it that we had to wait 80 plus years for our next national food strategy? So it's imperative to really include food into these conversations and to make sure that it is front and centre. When we look at how central our food system is to solving this climate crisis, it's a generational shift in which we're just understanding the true gravitas and the reality of this climate emergency in which we're in. You know, when we first launched Too Good To Go back in 2015, 2016, the conversation around food waste is entirely different to what it is now. That in itself reflects just the journey in which we're going into, which is this journey of understanding and really learning a lot more. What we're trying to create is a shift in public consciousness so that we are far more aware. And, you know, the conversations are the important conversations, which, you know, with respect to climate change is often talking around our food system, which is where our food comes from or the diets which we have or it's talking about ways in which to reduce food waste as well. And what does an alternative to the current food system actually look like? The way our food system needs to go, as I say, is changing hugely. It has to change massively. On a top line, what does that look like? It looks like eating more seasonally. A heart of that is is around sort of eating less and buying less uh, so that we waste less. Can we actually change our diets to something that's more seasonable? That is a huge challenge, particularly when you look at how we consume food now, which is very much as this commodity. It's this demand of wanting to eat strawberries 
least 12 months a year. But also at the heart of it is around actually reducing food waste. So whether that's changing the way in which we're producing food to the way in which uh, we purchase food. A good example of this is removing things like buy one, get one freeze. Why do we need to buy several kilos of potatoes or carrots or something like that? We don't, but we'll still take that anyway because we see it as something that's given to us. But yeah, the heart, as I say, is reducing food waste ourselves within our own lives and this being reflected in how businesses present food to us as well. What we should remind ourselves is that food waste is a systemic issue. So rather than it being totally around individual responsibility, this derives from the system in which it falls in. So there needs to be wholesale changes to our food system to ensure that it is far more sustainable. And with this, you know, it can then, as a result, change consumer behaviors around food and food waste so that it becomes a holistic approach to creating a more sustainable food system. But it certainly isn't something which can be done alone. And as I say, it needs all of these stakeholders, all of these players to work together to ensure that we can achieve a food system which is fit for the future. It's overwhelming to hear just how broken our global food system is, with food waste being the tip of the rapidly melting iceberg, which includes globalization, government subsidies, animal agriculture, monoculture cropping, pesticides, and so on. I want to hear how other young people are navigating their eco-anxiety in the context of this big, complex food system. Here they are. I'm Alicia, I'm 23 years old, and I'm from Manchester in the UK. I definitely do relate to the term eco-anxiety whenever I think about how much we've destroyed the planet in such a short space of time, it fills me with major existential dread. In terms of my relationship with food waste, it's probably quite a unique one. So my grandparents are Chinese immigrants who came to the UK for a better life after experiencing scarcity during the war. So I've always been brought up with a great respect for food and the idea of not wasting it because it's so valuable to us. But I suppose I first became interested in food waste as a research topic when I began investigating it for my undergraduate dissertation. Luckily, I was actually able to fill a gap in the literature with my findings and I expanded the field by getting my research published. Food waste is now the focal point of all my research. Food waste definitely makes me feel eco-anxious. The fact that I'm so informed on this topic now bears some major responsibility on my shoulders to share what I know with others and also encourage them to follow suit. It's a fine line between giving friendly advice and being pushy. I suppose ultimately I want to get my message across in a way which makes people not only want to listen, but also go out of their way afterwards to learn more. I'm still in the process of trying to figure out how I can do that. So I do often feel anxious and guilty sometimes that I'm not doing enough, but it's a work in progress. Sammy D, originally from Ontario, Canada, now rooting myself in White Rock, British Columbia, on the territory of the Coast Salish and Samayamu peoples. I am recently 30 years old. Food waste definitely makes me feel eco-anxious. Even in the world's most eco-friendly countries, such as Denmark, grocery stores are still dumping perfectly good food. It makes me scared to think that people don't know how to make a positive impact, but I'm telling you, composting is the number one solution that we all can make daily towards reducing our impacts on climate change. Food waste should not be viewed as waste, but as a resource to be recovered. I feel better by training businesses and residents on how to make the switch from throwing out their food to trash and instead making people feel like they're part of the solution by sending their food waste to composters. By doing that, hugging some trees and taking conscious breaks and also connecting to other environmentally aware friends, eco-anxiety can be turned into eco-optimism. 
Hello, my name is Jessica Grant and I'm a sustainability analyst based in Amsterdam. I am originally from the UK, but I moved to the Netherlands three years ago to join one of the biggest ESG data firms in the world. But what I've started to recognize recently more is the impact on my mental health. And actually this interview comes at a really good time because I'm having to take time off work. Yeah, I was struggling to do my day job. Three years of exposure to issues like deforestation, land clearing, overfishing, water stress, chemical use, biodiversity loss. Of course, this is going to be damaging on my mental health. And it's very overwhelming when you think, how on earth are we going to try and fix this stuff? That fills me with anxiety when I think about the scale of the issue. So I've had to take some time off recently to have a breather really, because I started feeling this huge wave of anxiety. It was making me very sad. I could cry at the drop of a hat and I wasn't really sure what was happening. My mum had said the other day, just, you know, maybe you're just not cut out for this. I understood where she was coming from, but I thought, how sad is that? You know, I, I care a lot. I have a lot of passion. I'm good at my job. But what if I have to quit because it's too much? I would hate to see the world where we have sustainability analysts that are doing the job that don't actually care about the climate or, you know, the people. That to me seems very wrong. My name is Sarah Goody. I am from the San Francisco Bay Area and I am 16 years old growing up in Northern California. I've always been absolutely terrified of wildfires and it took me a while to realize that those wildfires were being fueled by this climate crisis. As someone with asthma, each and every year I am sent to urgent care or to the hospital for breathing support because of the air pollution and the smoke that is caused by these fires, food and climate change and how those two intersects makes me feel eco-anxious a lot. And that's because so much of our society still chooses to eat animal products. That's why I try to change my diet and show others that it doesn't have to be challenging. By going plant-based or by going vegan, you don't have to be missing out on anything that there's still ways to enjoy the food that you eat without negatively impacting the environment. It was heartbreaking to hear from Jess, who is struggling with her eco-anxiety, being confronted with the problem day in and day out, and the thought of not being cut out for the work because it's all too depressing. I want to now chat with our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about what's at the heart of this relationship with food and how to navigate some of these overbearing feelings. As a reminder, Caroline is a psychotherapist from the University of Bath, who has spent years researching children and young people's relationships with nature as well as our feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. She's worked in the UK, the Maldives, the South Pacific, and other communities already on the front lines of the climate crisis. I think a lot of our denial and disavowal of the realities of climate change gets caught up in our conversations about food, because changing our diet is actually one of the easiest things we could do. It's not difficult to change our diet to address the climate emergency. It would require minimal 
disruption. It would save a lot of suffering to a lot of animals. We would probably end up healthier. It would resolve a lot of the waste and pollution problems. And it would save a lot of the deforestation and the pollution of the seas. So it's a no-brainer. This is the one easiest step we could take. Our infrastructures are so bound up with oil and transport and heating and energy. A lot of those things are much more difficult to resolve. But food is ironically the easiest thing to change. And I think that's partly why it attracts so much passion and frustration and anger and conflict, because it's one of the things that it's really hard to defend, continuing to eat in ways that are destructive to the environment. And so I think what it does is it triggers everybody's defences. And behind that defence is all of the unspoken terror and anxiety about the climate emergency. So it's almost as if perversely we won't let ourselves do it quite often. We cling and defend because it's the easiest thing to do. There is no defence against not changing our eating habits in the West. We're talking about in the West with dairy and meat in particular. We could all do it tomorrow. It would be a revolution. And actually, you don't have to absolutely cut those things out completely. You can still consume them to a small degree, but they're massively subsidised, hugely political issues. And we have this fantasy, this entitled idea that consuming meat and dairy is a good thing. It shows we've succeeded. It shows that we can afford it. It shows that we're privileged I'm talking again about the West. So we don't want to let that go. There's a resistance to giving that up, which is back to this, you know, narcissistic entitlement, back to this exceptionalism, back to this argument from Sally Weintrobe that we can have whatever we want because we are exceptional. So of course we can have cheap meat and not worry about the consequences of that, either to the animal or to the environment, which ultimately is damaging to ourselves. And our morality and our ethics are completely disconnected from this. So, so much of this comes back, I think, to education and understanding where our food comes from, how it's produced, what it costs. One of the most influential things I ever watched was the film Cowspiracy, which talked about the price of meat and how heavily subsidized it is. And if we were to pay the actual price it costs to produce the meat, relatively wealthy European families would eat meat maybe, what, once a week at the most, once a fortnight, because it would cost so much. Well, that seems reasonable to me. If people want to eat meat, eat meat, but pay the price and farm sustainably and thoughtfully and respectfully. It's so interesting to hear Caroline speak to this dichotomy. Both she and Jamie, among our other young voices, stress that changing our diets is one of the easiest things we can do to address the climate emergency. Yet this is partly why it is so polarizing and triggers our defenses. Having spoken to someone tackling their piece of the food equation through innovative solutions, I'm keen to talk to someone who is still very much part of the problem. So I invited Christine Doherty on the show, VP of Agriculture at PepsiCo, one of the world's corporate food and beverage giants. Before we dive in, here's the DL on today's brand sponsor, Lay's. This episode is made possible by Lay's. Whether you call them chips in the US or crisps in the UK, they are made with sustainably sourced potatoes in 28 countries. Lay's is working on regenerative farming practices to improve the health of their soil and the land, sequester carbon, and improve the livelihoods of their farming communities. As Lay's is part of the PepsiCo family of brands, it's part of an ecosystem that has committed to 
expanding regenerative agriculture practices across 15 million acres by 2030. It's also partnering with USAID and other nonprofits to empower female farmers with access to training and financial resources. With every bite of Lay's, they hope to leave a positive impact on the planet and the people they serve. Okay, so that's the tea. Let's see if it adds up as we chat to Christine. My name is Christine Darty. I'm the Vice President of Sustainable Agriculture and Responsible Sourcing for PepsiCo. What is broken within our food system in the 21st century? I would say in some parts of the world, it seems to be working fine, and in other parts, it doesn't work at all. And for us at PepsiCo, we're one of the largest food and beverage companies, and we know with that comes great responsibility. So we're committed to really leaning in especially on the agricultural supply chain. And I think what we are learning is one size doesn't fit all. And so we know that what may work in large scale farming operations, we need to make sure we're addressing it differently in those areas that have smallholders and may not have as much commercialization. What role does the food system play in contributing to the climate crisis? We may have gotten too monoculture and just planting one crop over and over or you know not necessarily looking and taking care of the soil or the natural resources but as we're moving into this next phase of food production we're realizing that we need to be sensitive to soil health water stewardship biodiversity and so if we think back about how the practices were done possibly with fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers or great-grandmothers, they realize you need to have healthy soil because healthy soil will provide great crop yields. It will provide biodiversity. It will make sure that that farming community is resilient. And so that's what we're doing at Popsico is, is leaning in, learning, working with partners on those items that frankly, we may have forgotten over the many years of production agriculture. And we need to dust that book off and read that chapter again. What kind of initiatives is PepsiCo actually putting in place to address the problem of food waste, both at the production side, but also at the consumer side? We all need to be better, even myself. When we go to the grocery store, let's think about what we're buying and how much we're buying, because if we get it home and it sits in the refrigerator and then we go, eh, I don't want to eat that or it goes by, well, we're part of the problem. For PepsiCo, clearly in our manufacturing. We try to be very efficient. For example, when we peel potatoes, we're looking at how do we make a circular potato? And so some work that we're doing in Europe is can we take that potato peel and make a fertilizer from it? And then for farm, we get better and better every day at what we'll call forecasting. How much do we think will be needed out a particular grocery store or retailer. And then we go backwards and say, all right, well, we need to plant so many acres of potatoes or corn or whatever the crop is so that we don't have excess waste in the field. This is something that all of us in agriculture can get better at is that forecasting. So the farmer is efficient on their production and they're not wasting inputs by planting more than we need. Last year, 
there were claims that PepsiCo among Unilever and Nestle and some other big conglomerates were indirectly sourcing palm oil from a producer which was destroying almost 3,000 hectares of forest in Indonesia in the first half of 2020 where I grew up. How does a company like PepsiCo commit to sustainable, responsible sourcing when you have such enormous demand and you're working with such large and complex supply chains? Part of the challenge, and you hit it right on, is complex supply chain. And if you grew up in Indonesia, you very well know smallholders that are trying to make a living and feed their family. They want to have the same things as their neighbors. So how do we develop programs that we can bring in the government, we can bring in local individuals, knowledge base, financing, supply chain? Because the last thing any company wants is to just throw up their hands and say, you know, we're out. Well, where does that leave that community? It may be that that community doesn't have the ability to have an income, or there might be an actor that comes in that isn't as responsible. So for us at Popsico, we really believe that convening the partners and partners are all of those entities that need to be at the table, sit down and co-create a solution that can be implemented there in that local environment. It is a complex problem, but tackling it head on is something that we take seriously and we're ready to sit down at the table and do our part. As a company and a for-profit company, you are still ultimately beholden to a bottom line and need to prioritize making money for your shareholders. How do you balance that? How do you ensure that you're driving an ambitious and aggressive enough agenda to keep within 1.5 degrees of warming and reaching those climate targets? You know, consumers like yourself, they're going to demand more transparency. They want to have the company talk about how are you addressing, you know, your carbon emissions. And so the shareholder aspect, it's you and me and others that are demanding more from companies. And so we need to look at it in the same way that we would approach any other business parameter. Sustainability, reducing carbon emissions, better water stewardship, addressing farming practices, same tables, legs as food safety and making sure that we're reporting. So this is how we're at PepsiCo looking at it is it's part of our day-to-day embedded in our business. According to some research that was conducted by a group called Research World, since 2017, that word greenwash has increased by a whopping 600%. And in that time, they found that PepsiCo received more greenwash mentions than any other company. Why do you feel that PepsiCo might have gained that reputation? Well, you know, I I can't specifically address their call out. But what I would say is that for PepsiCo and other companies, transparency is the key. And so the reports, whether it's sustainability reports, we recently have a green bond and we have to report out on that. It may also be that in today's world, people expect instantaneous results. 
You know, I can get on my phone and Google and I get an answer today and I just want it in 30 seconds. Unfortunately, climate emission and ag, those are longer term. When you look at how complex and big these systems are to change, do you ever feel that eco-anxiety? Yes, there's many challenges out there that it makes people anxious and then to layer on fires and food insecurity and dumping of agricultural products just makes it worse. But there's two things that I live by is one, control the controllables. And so can you as an individual do something that's going to make a difference? You yourself, you're putting out podcasts, you're getting people to think about it, you're empowering folks to stand up and make a change. That's something you can control. Likewise, can I control how PepsiCo's vision on agriculture? Yeah, I can go to the chief sustainability officer. I can go to our CEO and make those business cases. And then if you can't do something big and massive in your mind, what can you do individually? Recycle, shop local, purchase a hybrid vehicle if you drive a car. I ride my bike to places that I can. So control the controllables, get comfortable being uncomfortable, but do the things that allow you to go forward and not get stuck. To be perfectly honest, I felt incredibly frustrated coming out of that conversation with Christine. While she acknowledged in abstract terms what's not working with the food system, she made it sound like PepsiCo's contribution to that system has been accidental, implying that they haven't known the true extent of their climate impact. This coming from one of the world's largest food and beverage suppliers, a company that has been around for 123 years and makes tens of billions of dollars for its shareholders. PepsiCo have been repeatedly exposed for destructive agricultural practices, including deforestation from palm oil, rampant pesticide use, abuse of water resources, the exploitation of frontline communities, not to mention its plastic packaging. Each year, they are consistently one of the top sources of plastic pollution globally. Now, we didn't include it in the final cut, but when I did ask Christine about this, her defense was that PepsiCo created SodaStream so that you can make your favorite fizzy drinks at home. Don't worry guys, we've cracked it. We're going to solve the plastic crisis by selling people more plastic. This isn't supposed to be a dump on PepsiCo parade. The reason I have these conversations is to find mutual ground and because I don't believe we'll solve anything without big corporations being at the table. However, it can feel pretty disheartening on days like these. Having conversations with business leaders who put the responsibility back on us consumers and speak about the climate crisis as if it's some mild inconvenience rather than a global emergency. Alessandro spoke to this point in our episode on plastics. The fact that his eco-anxiety doesn't stem from the problems, so much as people in power acting as if they don't exist. If there's one thing I take from today's episode, it's resilience. On the macro level, we need to create an inherently regenerative, respectful, resilient food system. That includes putting an end to widespread monoculture cropping, pesticide use, industrialized animal agriculture, and the burning of millions 
million-year-old forest to grow palm oil for two-minute snacks. And on a personal level, we need to cultivate resilience too. Jess spoke to how her mum thought perhaps she just wasn't cut out for the job. What she's really saying is, do you have the resilience to keep showing up without falling into despair? Resilience has become the most important tool to me as an activist. Whether that's during pained family dinners where my vegetarian diet is the subject of scrutiny, reading mean messages directed at me on the internet, or even having conversations with business leaders intent on sticking their heads in the sand. To me, resilience means swimming against the tide when everyone else is paddling in the opposite direction. It means surrounding myself with like-minded people who are awake to the issues and will stand in solidarity alongside me. Resilience is finding my impact through focus, rather than spreading myself thin across all the issues, or even trying to convince every person I talk to. Resilience is knowing when to step away because the feelings do become too much and allowing myself to rest and replenish. Resilience is critical in a climate crisis world. Only with resilience can we fight, fall down, get back up and do it all again the very next day. Next week on the show, we'll be discussing waste and consumerism. We have amazing conversations lined up. You'll hear from Shilpi Chotre, Director of Communications at Break Free From Plastic, as well as Latar, Senior Vice President at P&G, who oversees brands such as Head & Shoulders, Aussie, and Herbal Essences. As always, you'll hear from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Jamie over at toogoodtogo.uk to bring you some pretty epic content. Be sure to head over to the gram and join the conversation. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you know what to do. This podcast was brought to you by Force of Nature and One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the editor and producer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher with additional creative support from Selena Christofidis. Running Force of Nature takes a village and would not be possible without Phoebe Hansen, Kathleen Hamilton, Alejandra Arias, Sasha Wright, Julia Sams, Vida Han, and Zineb Jardin. As a reminder, if you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz. Additionally, if you are struggling with your mental health, please consult a medical professional. 